1: AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics, and the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with five G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com/slash-now.
2: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're
3: winning.
4: Before we get started, let's talk about Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a subscription podcast program available on Apple Podcasts. Members will get access to exclusive bonus content, like my weekly bookmarks, where I talk about how I got a book agent and what I'm watching on TV that week. You'll get uninterrupted listening to many of your favorite podcasts, like Revisionist History, Cautionary Tales, and The Happiness Lab. Sign up for Pushkin Plus on the show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. Elizabeth Acevedo is a poet and author who has crafted some of the most insightful young adult poetry in recent years. The Dominican-American writer got her start in the slam poetry circuit as a teenager Her debut novel, The Poet X, about a 15-year-old girl in Harlem, won the 2018 National Book Award in Young People's Literature. Elizabeth writes novel in verse, a single story over several poems. I consider a poem something that is self-contained,
2: that talks about or explores a human experience in the least amount of words possible. But a novel in verse may only have maybe 10 poems.
4: Her recent book, Clap When You Land, follows two teenage girls who learn they share the same father after he dies in a plane crash.
2: It was interesting to feel like an outsider who had to be really thoughtful and gentle and um, open to an experience different than my own, even though I do know DR. But I've treated it with the respect as if I were writing an ethnicity other than my own.
4: Elizabeth is a former eighth grade teacher who is familiar with the language of young people. This makes it easier for her to write for and like them. It's just one of the many reasons she's a success. Welcome to Well Read Black Girl, the literary kickback you didn't even know you needed. I'm your host, Glory Edam. Every week, I talk to writers and thinkers about their craft and how their work shows up in the world. In this episode, I speak with Elizabeth Acevedo about how her music influenced her poetry, why hip-hop gave her the tools to talk about her neighborhood, and how her style puts her in a league of her own. Elizabeth, welcome to the Wild well Red Black Girl podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Glory, I'm so hyped to be here with you. You know what? Let's start from the beginning. How did poetry show up in your childhood?
2: When poetry initially showed up for me, I didn't know to call it poetry. My grandfather had a third grade education. and He was the person who would walk me to and from school every single day. And he had these riddles that he had memorized. It was lyrical. It was rhyme. It had the turns that we are used to in a sonnet in terms of a volta. Like there were these arcs in his riddles. And that was one of the earliest moments where poetry was recited to me. Mm. My mother loves telling stories. And so she was constantly telling me stories about when she was younger and she used to ride horses. And so for me, poetry arrived as a love of language, as a love of what language allowed me to access, how it connected me to a home I didn't always feel a connection to and I began writing rap initially right to me that was where I wanted to go I wanted to be a hip-hop star I was waiting for Jay-Z to discover me right (laughs) and so all of that was poetry but I just wasn't calling it that
4: yet I love that. Well, I know you said in the past that rappers were the original workshop leaders, you know? (laughs) Um, So when you look at your favorite rappers, musicians, how have they kind of set an example for you? And what were you trying to emulate?
2: I think I was trying to emulate how do I talk about my neighborhood? How do I talk about folks in ways that feel centered in that area? Right. And I think hip hop never felt Separate from the people it was talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm really hard on myself. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist when it comes to my work. I want to hold on to a book for a long time and make sure it's perfect and everyone who like reads it is gonna love it. And I think watching how I love certain artists and maybe didn't love that last album or maybe wasn't moved by quote unquote this particular era gives me a lot of freedom to realize like people create and sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't. But also To be an artist in your life for decades means that you're going to put some stuff out that isn't the perfection you want it to be, but it's still moving your legacy or what you are leaving as your body of work.
4: Right, right. That's such a good point, especially as your profile grows. You know, you are a National Book Award winner, so we got like millions of people reading your book without question. But there's something to be said about separating yourself from the work. So you can just be open to the critique and you can be open to this idea that not everyone's going to receive it the way you thought it would be received. And that's okay. Yeah, for sure. I remember
2: being young and I loved Eve and I loved Eve's first album. And then she was talking about her sophomore album and she was like, I'm so afraid of the sophomore slump. Like, you know, you come out with something great and then you just want to match that first thing and you don't allow a second, third, fourth project to have its own
4: life. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm also thinking about this idea of Space, mm. Like, what does it mean for you to take up space where you need to and not just in the physical form? Like, I've seen you perform, but I just remember being so captured by your voice and just completely pulled in. You have such a presence about you when you're performing, and that presence definitely shows up on the page mm. as well. So can you talk to us about how you cultivated that, how you learned to just be in your body and understand your agency? You know, I laugh a little bit because I'm like, if you only knew the struggles (laughs) I've been having with being in my
2: body, right? (laughs) But um, I feel that there are times on stage that I've felt the most me and the best version of me, Mm. that there were moments when it was quiet and I'm just holding this stage for 10, 15 minutes, you know, sometimes 30, sometimes 45 when I was doing a full one woman show that was very freeing. I have not always had a platform where I could just talk for Mm -hmm. however long and people just listen. And so I think that part of the learning is like, how do I hold a room? How do I ensure that I'm connecting, that I'm creating pauses? I find that my books, I ask those same questions. How do I ensure that my audience feels cared for? What are the little things I can put in here to let folks know like, no, I'm writing to you. Mm -hmm. right this is for you and I think when I was on stage it was that same thing looking into an audience and finding the people to make eye contact with and the one person in the back who's nodding to everything and just like we are creating this together and for me the books feel that way right like what people bring to a story affects their read I don't know if you've had this glory where you read something you're like oh this is not for me right Right? you stop you don't finish and then two years later you pick it up and you're like what was I thinking (laughs) Right, the book didn't change, but you changed. Yes, your ability yes. to be in that space, your ability to lend mm-hmm. your heart and your memories to a book, so that it opens up for you, and maybe practicing that on stage has helped me be able to do that with my books. Like, I'm I'm going to give as much as I can, so that when you bring your full self, we're making something together, right? That's the story making.
4: Oh, that's so beautiful. So, just to piggyback off of that, can you talk about the first poem? that you wrote that made you understand that you were going to be a poet? Yeah, I, mean, I
2: was really young. I was maybe eight or nine. And I remember writing about dolphins. Dolphins don't kill dolphins and birds don't kill birds, but people kill people. And that really hurts. That's like probably one of the youngest, like just little nine-year-old poem, right?
4: <laughs> That's amazing. Girl,
2: girl, you were deep. Listen, and dolphins are actually really violent. <laughs> so baby Liz was <laughs> was wishfully thinking. <laughs> But it was always social. It was always like social critique or why are we this way? Like, I just had so many questions and the writing was where I could find those answers or at least chronicle my, my wonderings.
4: Right. Oh, I love that. I want to talk about just like, I'm thinking about modeling and how you do that for so many people. And as I was doing the rereading of your book, I noticed the dedication and I was so impressed with your kindness to dedicate it to Catherine and to your former students at Buck Lodge. Can you talk about that? Why you dedicated it to them and what it means for them to show up in your story? Yeah, I was an
2: eighth grade English teacher before the Poet ever came out, before I even had gone to grad school and started writing for touring and writing for publication. And teaching eighth grade is like the cusp of when young people are really going from being children to now having very new expectations of young adulthood and hormones and feelings. And it's really hard to teach that age range. <laughs> and so I had this student, Catherine Bolaños, who I absolutely adored. She was just the funniest, wittiest kid. Um, and she was resistant to silent reading time. And I remember being like, "Like, what can I get you? I had bought all the like super dope, fun books that I could get my hands on. And she's just like, you know, none of these books are about us. For her, it was, I'm a Salvadoran young woman. I need something else. And so that felt like the baton that I needed at the time. Like, why not you? And I had to start questioning, why not me? I'm a writer, but what do I think I don't have to offer literature that I don't want to create a project specifically for these young peoples that, that, that I know are yearning for this? And so the dedication was for Catherine. It was for my students. I think it was for my former self, but also that dedication is a reflection of a dedication that Angela Johnson in her book, The First Part Last, wrote for me where she wrote, this is dedicated to Elizabeth Acevedo and all the students at the Manhattan School for Children, because I had written her a letter about her book, Heaven. And I was like, I love this book, but I want to know more about this secondary character and wrote these long notes on what I thought she should write. (laughs) And she never wrote me back. But two years later, this book came out and the dedication was to me. And so it felt like with my book, when it comes out, I want to pass on the young person who encouraged me to go on the path of this project. So it felt like an homage to Angela Johnson, but also like, who knows who else might be inspired by this kind of dedication.
4: That is just such a wonderful story. That is so endearing and beautiful. I want to talk about the young people because I'm just curious to hear What you feel like they've taught you, like, were you like listening to them in the classroom? Like, how do you, why are you able to cultivate that? Because in every one of your books, like Clap When You Land, The Poet Mm -hmm. X, it sounds so authentic. And it does feel like you have this kinship with young people where you can, like, get their voices. Because sometimes you read YA books, you're like, oh, that's not how young people (laughs) talk. (laughs) But it really sounds like you understand who they are. I
2: try to really hone my ear. In general, just when I'm with folks, when I'm in community, I'm trying to listen for cadences, how particular people bump words up against each other. I was lucky to have been an eighth grade teacher who had a lot of writing projects assigned to my students. So I got a sense of what they would reveal, what they wouldn't reveal, what kinds of prompts inspired them. I honestly would probably give the most credit to having been the coach for the DC Youth Slam team I worked with young poets which is a little bit different because they were so motivated they were engaging with language constantly and I got to hear how they were advancing language Mm. how they were moving it into a different step so I go to a lot of events where I'm not the center I'm sitting in the back somewhere and I'm just listening to how young people express themselves and I have a lot of respect I think maybe because I was a young person who had been mentored and I remember vividly what mentors did or said that made me feel valued but I'm constantly listening
4: After the break, more with Elizabeth Acevedo on her writing and research process for her latest book, Clap When You Land.
0: I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And do all of it in one place with the Chase Mobile app. And that's helped these brew loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at Chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank, NA, member FDIC.
5: Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies. The cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the City of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at t unconventional unconventionalawards That's T-Mobile.com/unconventionalawards.
1: See you there. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn. Alliances will shift. And danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime Annual Plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply.
4: I'm Gloria Adam, and you're listening to Well-Read Black Girl. Today, I'm joined by Elizabeth Acevedo poet and best-selling author of The Poet X and Clap When You Land. Elizabeth wrote both books as a novel in verse. This is where a narrative is written using poetry instead of prose. I really want to look at your process, right? So with a novel in verse, like, Where do you begin? Like, sometimes when I'm reading poetry, it feels very interior. It feels very abstract at times. It can go anywhere, and there's so much metaphor. But when you're actually structuring novel in verse, there's a story. Like You need to, like, you know, get from a beginning to end in a very precise way. So how do you construct your novels so they can have that rhythm and that structure, but also have the very delicate balance of poetry. I consider a poem something that is self-contained,
2: that talks about or explores a human experience in the least amount of words possible. Mm-hmm. But the hardest thing with a novel in is that you're juggling narrative. Is there a plot? Is there a story? Are my characters clear um, and language? Yeah. And then this third piece that we just talked about, which is, and does it sound like a young person's voice? Is this the kind of poetry a young person could write? And that becomes hard. I have to separate the poet self who wants to be impressive from the novelist self who wants to be expressive. And, and just like that meld of, well, it has to be a little bit of both. I have to control it enough that a reader knows what she's doing. And I feel safe in these pages because I'm following someone who is tightly holding the story together. For the most part, uh, pieces, I like to think of them as hinges. So Mm. I create these moments that feel really beautiful or like we're getting the character's heart. And then I'm just connecting narrative to those pieces and I'm letting it like hinge between the next section and the next section. But I think that I'm very mindful of the language and the spacing and the line breaks because Mm. of the ways that it creates breath on the page, momentum on the page. It gives insight into the speaker or the character's mindset if there's no punctuation in a piece, like you're moving through it a little bit faster. So there's a lot of craft that I use that is from having been a poet and learning what those tools are that I bring here.
4: I wanna talk about your relationship with hair. I know your new book is coming out, Inheritance, and you decided to like stop performing that poem. Yes, yes. Why? Like why did you decide to do that? And what was the motivation? What are you trying to really expressed to the reader?
2: Yeah. I mean, so the hair poem is is very much about just the reclamation of self-love. And I loved doing that poem for a long time. And then I felt like I was getting cornered into, oh, she does the hair poem versus all the other kind of writing I put into the world or the other poems that I have to perform. That poem outgrew me mm-hmm. in a way that was difficult to catch up to and felt like it was restraining me a little bit. Like, This is going to be the defining thing. A poem I wrote in 2009 as a senior in college will be the last piece of literature that like anyone cares about. Right. And so I think I slowly started moving away from that. We've had another natural hair movement in the last decade that felt like, all right, the poem worked. People are listening. You know, my job here is done. It was an evolution of like, I don't want to be the only one carrying this piece anymore. But also that poem was written particularly and with my mom as the person that a lot of those feelings were targeted as. Mm. And as I've grown older, I realized that some of my hesitation with that poem is that who I am differs from the person who wrote it. And so being mm. able to revise it as a book, I wanted it to be one that could be shared. So as opposed to, this is like my war cry to my mother, I'm going to love myself regardless of what you think I should do with my hair. I wanted it to be more of a praise poem, to all of us who hold our natural selves, including the mothers who have protected us, you know, in terms of loving ourselves and the aunties and the uncles who, this day and age, young people are growing up with.
4: Right. We were talking about music earlier. Do you feel like your work has a very distinct rhythm? It's like sometimes I read something I'm like, okay, like this uh, Elizabeth's trait, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like is is that something that you feel very intentional about where you want there to be a rhythm or a cadence to your work every time someone encounters it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that for sure music in all of my work is a big part of it. Even with the Fire on High, Manny Santiago story, which is told in prose. I remember one of the biggest challenges I had was it doesn't feel like the language is doing enough. It doesn't feel beautiful enough. And so going through every single chapter and making sure that the chapter endings were really thoughtful and all of them end on an image and all of them end internally, right? To give it that um, interiority that you could get from a poem. I, I, Same with trying to capture the imagery in ways that still lean into my poetic self, because I think that that is where my voice is most honed. It is in the music, in the words I move against each other in the images that most people may not think of. And so I know that those are my strengths and it's what I lean on. Right. And so that is style to some extent. But in terms of my voice, yeah, I hope anyone could pick up my work and be able to tell like the cadence here is Elizabeth Acevedo. Almost all my books start with names. Like the first section I'll write is just like, what's the character's name? What's their relationships to their name? How does this reflect how they think about their parents or their homes? And then sometimes there are poems that end up before that are pieces that end up after. But the name poem is often where I'm grounding myself in the character and I spring from there. And you'll find every single one of my books has some type of meditation on names.
4: Yes, I did notice that. When you wrote uh, Clap When You Land, like, were you taking memories or experiences you had in the DR? Like, were you clapping when the plane (laughs) landed? How did you craft that narrative? Clap
2: When You Land was a wild ass story, right? Because I've had this idea in my head for over a decade about this plane crash that happened when I was really young and like the ways that my community responded to it. So I knew that. And what a lot of folks don't know is that initially that story, which has two different point of views, was only written in one point of view. The entire mm-hmm. novel was just written from Yahira's point of view. And I was having a conversation with E.B. Zaboy, who wrote *American Street*, *Pride*, and is the editor of *Black Enough*, amongst many other books. And E.B. is Haitian, and so we share an island. And I'm telling her about this story, and I'm like, "Yes, and this is a secret sibling." And E.B. is listening, and she's like, "So, are you gonna write the secret sibling?" And I'm like, no. Right. I was so nervous. Because I was like, well, it would be in DR. And I would have to get like the Dominicans from the Dominican Republic and Dominicans from the diaspora. Like those are different experiences. And so it was interesting to feel like an outsider who had to be really thoughtful and gentle and um open to an experience different than my own, even though I do know DR. I, I have gone many, many times. I have spent summers there, but I've treated it with the respect as if I were writing an ethnicity other than my own, right? But the project mm-hmm. of putting this book together was kind of wild. And yeah, I clap when I land, right? Like I'm the only person on the <laughs> just like, <laughs> y'all not gonna take this away from me. We were just in a metal tube that somehow got us from there to here. So yes, praise be. <laughs>
4: No, it's true. It's like you have to acknowledge all the parts that you know and then question the parts that you don't, and they can blend together yeah. to make the story. And I think people do that whether they're writing fiction or nonfiction. It's like it makes it even more richer if you do that yeah. research. How how did that process go? Was it primarily family members? Did you look online? And not only for clap when you land, but all your books, like how do you organize your research when you begin writing?
2: Yeah, I do a good amount of interviews with, especially if the background is Dominican with my family members and with my cousins from DR because sometimes things are just how I was raised. And I think like, oh, this is how Dominicans are raised. And sometimes I know like, my mom just had her own idiosyncrasies, right? <laughs> and I can't just meld that that is the way that all Dominicans do it. So I like to kind of crowdsource, you know, if something is of the community or of the culture or is it just my household. Um, but I will say that for Clap When You Land, like I said, I spent time in Sosua and Cabarete um, working with young people. And so getting a sense of like the lives that they live there. Um, I do a lot of Google mapping where I see neighborhoods. So when I wrote Imani Santiago's story, I looked at Fair Hill and I considered what do the streets look like and what does Allegheny Avenue look like? And I've gone to Philly plenty of times. I taught in Philly, but I went back to high school that had a culinary arts kitchen and studies and sat in class and watched the students and how they worked and how the teacher made assignments, how he graded assignments. Um, And so my research is very much uh, being in the moment, kind of getting a sense of what I don't know, right? So I write a lot and then I go in and try to figure out, okay, where do I up my background knowledge on this thing?
4: You're you're like a method actor. You're like, I'm going to go in, I'm going (laughs) to sit with the students. I'm ear hustling. I appreciate it. (laughs) No, it's real. I mean, I don't plot. I'm not out here writing arcs.
2: Um, I write character sketches, but the work is the work. You know what I mean? Like the work is the actual work and that's the writing and the imagination. And then you make it true.
4: Hey, hey, hey. It's time for Rapid Fire. So it's like the first thing that comes to your mind. All right. Name a book on your nightstand. I'm reading Issa Rae's Awkward Black Girl. Oh, really? That's I'm awesome. late. I'm late, but <laughs> I'm just like, Issa's my best friend. She doesn't know who we are. Just... She's so great. If you had a rap or hip hop career, what would be your rap name?
5: Mm.
2: <laughs> what? Well, at one point, I lived in Southeast D.C., and so I used to call myself mouthpiece from Southeast.
4: So that... (laughs) (laughs) This is a little harder. You can only choose one, The House on Mango Street or Before We Were Free.
2: The House on Mango Street.
4: Favorite Dominican dish?
2: I'm going to go with the famous stew sancocho, which is everybody's homecoming, and pelini.
4: What was the first poem you memorized by heart?
2: Lucille Clifton's, won't you celebrate with me? The last three lines which go, won't you celebrate with me? That every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. I've since memorized like maybe three, four other of her poems. She's the only person who like I literally carry in my body alongside my own work. Yeah.
4: Last one, most memorable open mic moment as a young poet. I remember performing at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and this
2: was probably one of the biggest stages I'd ever been on. I mean, there's nothing like being 15 and getting a standing ovation. There is nothing that will ever prepare you for, like, people getting on their feet because something you said. I think that there was something about that that showed me, like, oh, language harnesses a lot. Mm. You know, it can harness all of this.
4: Thank you so much for joining me and just sharing your process and just giving us so much, giving us the Elizabeth rhythm. I really appreciate you.
2: (laughs) Glory. I'm so hyped to be here with you. It was a delight.
4: After the break, bookshop owner Lucy Yu of New York's You and Me will share her story of being the first Asian-American woman to open a bookstore in Manhattan's Chinatown.
0: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
5: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets, so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first-place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat
1: The wait is over. The Shy is back on Paramount Plus and the stakes have never been higher.
4: This week, Lucy Yu of New York's You and Me talks about how she went from being a chemical engineer to bookshop owner during the pandemic.
3: I think my nerdiness translates to both engineering and books, and it was a reliable career path. You know, I had the 401k and made my Asian parents proud. They're like, good job, like engineer. But it wasn't really fulfilling for me. I don't think it ever was. To open up a bookstore in the middle of a pandemic, I think any business expert would have been like, what are you thinking? But I think the hunger for having stories that represent people that look like me and people that have immigrant stories, people that have experiences similar to mine is always going to be there regardless of whether or not we're in a pandemic. And I really wanted to create a home for that and create a home where people can come in and see stories on the walls that they feel close to. I had experienced, unfortunately, the loss of one of my best friends in the last year. And I think we all went through so much loss and so much trauma and so much grief. And I poured so much of that into the passion that I always wanted to do, which is create a bookstore. I found so much comfort and safety and love within books and stories. And I think what I saw that was lacking was stories that were really pushed on the forefront, especially with people of color writing them and being at the center of the focus. It's actually always been there, but in terms of what's being pushed by the publishers, I don't think it's always been a top priority. So I wanted to create a home for that. The Chinatown community has just welcomed me with open arms. It feels like one big family. I mean, the first day that I moved into this retail space, the dumpling shop next door, Tasty Dumpling, they brought in like 30 dumplings to just welcome me into the neighborhood that kind of love and that kind of language with food that was always my mom's way of saying I love you I care about you let me give you food without explicitly saying so that's translated so much to the neighborhood here so I feel very much at home and have been welcomed very much like home as well Listen
4: to more conversations with bookshop owners, community members, and literary advocates on Bookmarks, exclusively on Pushkin+. Plus. Elizabeth Acevedo has a distinct voice as an author that comes from her experience as a poet and her love for the rhythms and cadences of hip-hop music. What makes her writing so exciting is that you believe in what she's saying. She brings you into her world with such ease. Reading her books feels like revisiting your favorite song. I believe the truest test of any author's work is not about the awards they win, but who remembers the work deeply? What happens to their work after it's published? I know young people will be reading Elizabeth's work for years and years to come. Clap When You Land is out now if you haven't gotten it yet. In our next episode, I'll be joined by Honoré Fanon Jeffers to talk about her debut novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. Well Red Black Girl is a production of Pushkin Industries. It is written and hosted by me, Glory Edom. And produced by Cher Vincent and Brittany Brown. Our associate editor is Keisha Williams. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wang, and our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Mia Lobel and Lee Hall Molad. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Julia Barton, Jen Guerra, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at WellRedBlackGirl. You can find Pushkin on all social media platforms at Pushkin Pods. And you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. If you have a question, a recommendation, or you just want to say hi, email us at wrbg at pushkin.fm. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin+. Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you're already a subscriber, make sure to check out my exclusive Bookmark series. You'll hear extended interviews with book club members, bookstore owners, and more. And you get to hear what's on my mind, what's on my radar, and of course, what's on my reading list each week. To find more Pushkin Podcasts, listen on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.
5: Right here, right now. Find your
2: beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring.
5: Your perfect home sweet home. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, You'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at t-mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there.